Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Big Care Clinic podcast. My name is Alicia Schertz, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm joined today by Dr. Elizabeth Dixon Michelson, gynecologic oncologist at Aurora Bay Care Medical Center, to discuss gynecologic cancers and advancements in treatment options for women. Thank you for joining us today, Doctor. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. I want to start um, sort of just by defining for everyone what we mean by gynecologic cancers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So most patients, when they hear gynecologic cancer, they think ovarian, but actually it's a group of cancers, all what I like to call the lady part cancers. So there is ovarian, but also uterine. And sometimes we use the word endometrial to also describe uterine cancer, but the uterine cancer, there's cervical cancer, and then there's also fallopian tube cancer, and then vulva and vaginal cancer. So basically everything, quote, below the belt is considered a um, gynecologic cancer. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about how common these cancers are in women and who does it affect? So that's a great question. Each each cancer is a little bit different. The number one gynecologic cancer is endometrial or uterine. Um, they are all less of an incidence than things like lung or breast cancer, um, but they do affect different types of women. And depending on which type of cancer it is, it may affect a, a different population. So one thing that we talk about with cancers is that what cancer truly is, is that the genes in your cells have decided to change so that those cells are turning into something they're not supposed to be. And so those genes can sometimes be affected with the cancers as well. And so each gene is associated with potentially a different kind of cancer. So there may be a gene in your family. There may be other genes that are causing those cancers to develop. And so that really depends on on which gene we're talking about that goes with which cancer. Yeah, and it might be different for each type as well, but are you seeing these types of cancers in women of a certain age, of a certain demographic, or how prevalent is it among maybe those types of characteristics? Yeah, so the the problem is it depends on which one you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So with ovarian cancer, we've got three different types of ovarian cancer, and some cancers are more associated with postmenopausal women. Some are associated with more younger women. And endometrial cancer or uterine cancer, those can be associated with older women, but also we're actually seeing the incidence of endometrial cancer go up in younger women. Cervical cancer, are it could be anyone really, but again, more older women. Vulvar and vaginal cancer, kind of we link with cervical cancer because they all kind of are caused by the same thing, HPV. So those incidences are very similar to cervical cancer as well. Yeah, and and you're using some of the words that I think people will be familiar with, but I do want to talk about sort of that rate of occurrence because you have... Um, some studies and some data that indicate that maybe there is some of these cancers or types of cancers that are on the rise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So ovarian, cervix, and then vulva slash vaginal, those are all kind of on the way down, not by much, but they are, the incidences are going down. And I think that's more for the fact that at least with ovarian cancer, there's a lot more awareness now. There's awareness of, you know, things that we can watch out for. And then cervix slash vulva or vaginal cancers are all linked to getting your pap smear. So the one, unfortunately, that we see going up just a titch is the endometrial or uterine cancer. And the reason we think for that is because endometrial and uterine cancer can be linked to obesity. What we think happens is that there's an abnormal balance in your hormonal 
milieu, if you will. So your your balance of your hormones is off. And so you have more estrogen in the uterus that's causing those cells to get bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually become cancer. And so unfortunately with obesity, that those cells produce more estrogen. And so we think that change in that balance is what's causing us to see as the obesity epidemic goes up, the endometrial and uterine cancer go up as well. Yeah, that's interesting and in that everything is sort of linked to that healthy lifestyle and that kind of thing. Right, exactly, exactly. And hormonal balance. You know, that's that's the other thing, especially with endometrial and uterine, but also ovarian, is it has to do with your hormones and how your hormones are balanced in your body. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about maybe some of those things that people can pay attention to in just a moment. But I do want to back up. I want to talk a little bit about your background. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done throughout your career and, and how you got into oncology medicine? Yeah, so I originally did my training um, in OBGYN, and then during my OBGYN residency, we rotate in a bunch of the different what's called subspecialties. So we do extra training to kind of more focus our careers. And one of the places that I went was to the oncology um, the oncology service. And so on that oncology service, seeing these patients, seeing these women walking through this journey of being one of the most scared times of their life, they really need people and practitioners to help walk alongside them. Obviously, we're not doing the work. (laughs) We're just kind of here helping. But to have more of those practitioners be able to be there for those women during a time in their life where they feel like there could be so many unknowns that they're just not sure about. So that's how kind of I got into cancer care is that I wanted to be there. I wanted to be that support system for those women who are dealing with cancer. And then after that, um, with my career, kind of I've been doing and working more with survivorship, so treating the patients more like themselves, not like their cancer. So this is something that they are trying to get treatment for and they're trying to surpass, but that's not who they are. They're still the person who loves to bake. They're still the person who likes to go run. And so how do we focus on making sure that those things that they love to do, they can still do during their treatment? And then after their treatment... You know, we always talk about the chemo, the radiation, the surgery. What happens after that? What, when we're done, what, what happens? And getting them to the, quote, new norm where they can still do all those things that make them them without much side effects from the therapy that they've had. Yeah, and you, you kind of segued perfectly into that because I did want to talk about your additional training and just your experience, you know, working with gynecologic oncology patients and, and just, you know, the career that you've had. What difference does that make for patients and their experience and the care that you can provide? So because I've done the extra training in GYN oncology um, services, we get trained not only in the surgery to be able to do um, and remove the cancer, but also in the chemotherapy that is given. So we're kind of this unique animal with GYN cancers because um, a lot of other cancers are treated by medical oncology for their chemo and by surgical oncology for their surgery, but we're actually as Gynox trained in both. So that gives us a little bit leg up in kind of understanding the diseases that we treat. Um, and there are studies out there that say, you know, the people who should be treating gyne cancers are those who are trained in gynecologic oncology, so did that extra fellowship. 
Yeah, and I want to talk about some of those treatment options for, for these types of cancers. And obviously, they'll be different for each different type, as you've already mentioned. But where do you start um, when you're talking with patients and, and what treatment options are available? So it really, like you said, it depends on which one we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Most, however, and I would say that kind of with a caveat, most start with talking about surgery. If the cancer that's there is small enough and we're able to remove it, then that's what we want to do. We want to get it out of there. If, though, we can't, it's too big. It's in other places besides the pelvis, meaning that it's gone up to the liver, it's gone up to the lungs. Then we talk about doing chemotherapy first and then surgery. So it just kind of depends on how people present. And everybody presents a little bit different way. But the mainstay is if we can get that puppy out of there, then we want to get that cancer out. And if we can't do it up front, then we got to do chemo first to be able to shrink it. There is also radiation treatments, and radiation historically has been more used for things like cervical, vulvar, and vaginal cancers, and less so for ovarian. And endometrial, it just kind of depends on where the endometrial presents, but radiation hasn't been a mainstay for things like ovarian quite yet, but it actually, we're kind of trying to change our thought process and how we use the radiation too. Yeah. Interesting. So there's definitely options for oh, absolutely. patients. And how do you go about deciding? I mean, obviously it depends on the case. It's a case-by-case basis, I'm sure. But what is the conversation like that you're having with those patients? So first I want to know what their goals are because some patients come in saying, you know, I have heart problems, I have lung problems, I can't do surgery. Some patients come in and say, you know, I've had I've had family members who have had radiation, had chemo, I, I can't do that. Like, I cannot do that stuff. So we talk about that. We talk about their goals. We talk about what they're hoping to achieve from the cancer care. Obviously, most are hoping to achieve the cancer to go away. Right. <laughs> um, and so we need to figure out the best way to do that. But then after that, the other things we want to do is minimize how many side effects they have from whatever therapy they're having. So surgery, for example, if we can do things as minimally invasive with tiny incisions, robotically or laparoscopically, we want to limit the side effects of that surgery. On the flip side, for things like chemotherapy, we want to make sure that we're offering services that help with nausea, help with pain, help with energy level during their chemotherapy, and the same for radiation. So whichever treatment route we're going, and again, it depends on what cancer they have, we will tailor the extra stuff that we do, things like, you know, Reiki therapy, acupuncture, massage therapy, physical therapy, based on what they're going through to try and decrease those side effects. I I think you just touched on it a little bit, but I do want to talk about sort of the innovations that you've seen um, just in the history of of gynoc treatment and the things that you guys are able to provide and, and maybe just the way, the different way that you've thought about it or that physicians like you have thought about it. So can you talk a little bit about how those treatment options have changed over time? Absolutely. So, you know, back in the day, as we like to say, it was more about chemotherapy kind of affecting any cells that are trying to rapidly divide. So the traditional, what we call, like to call traditional chemo, quote, quote, is more looking at the cells anywhere in your body that are trying to grow and divide. So that's not only cancer cells, because those are growing faster than they're supposed to be, but it's also things like your bone marrow, your hair, unfortunately, um, your stomach lining, things like that. 
Now, the newest kid on the block is actually what's called targeted therapy. So there's a bunch of different ways we can do targeted therapy, but those targets look actually at not only the genes, but also receptors, which are these little guys that are on the cells, trying to stop them from doing what cancer likes to do, which is rapidly grow, try and go other places, get more blood flow to it, basically survive when your body is telling it to stop. And so those targeted therapies really is where cancer care is going right now. And so the ovarian cancer is a, is a big one where we had these two drugs, they're called Carbo and Taxol, and that's what everybody got and that's what we did and everybody got it. But now we're looking more at targeted therapies to the genes that are changed to make cancer that then those targets don't affect every single cell that you have. They are actually looking at those abnormal cells. And so we do a lot of genetic testing. We do a lot of testing not only of patients but also of their tumor to see if they can actually have those gene targets to be able to use um, less less side effect um, therapy. Oh, so interesting. And, and along those same lines, you had talked about it briefly also, but um, you and your colleagues and, and specifically Aurora Baker Medical Center is, is sort of renowned for their robotic surgery opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about that and what those advancements mean for patients? Yeah, so it used to be that we had to do really huge surgeries, big incisions. Patients were in the hospital forever. Like the, it used to be not great to, to have, um, you know, pelvic surgery. But now with robotics, you know, I'm coming up on my 1,000th case of robotic surgery, and we are able to do and take you know, the uterus out through tiny incisions and patients go home the exact same day. They have much less pain. They feel like they're completely back to normal in a couple of days, maybe a week. And it's really not incision pain anymore. And it, and we think more about surgery as a stress state. So we're trying to get you back to your normal state. And so how do we do that? And we do that by walking around, ambulation, by trying to continue to have something in your stomach so you're not feeling nauseous because your stomach's empty, you know, things like that. So robotics has changed dramatically how the surgery is for most of our GYN cancers. It's amazing just to see the difference, um, even just hearing it in your voice, the difference of what they could they went through before and now and, and, and the things that you're able to do for patients. Um, you know, another angle of this is, and especially because you've already mentioned that you're sort of seeing younger women come in with these types of cancers and these types of issues, another angle of this is sort of that fertility preservation, because if they do still want to have children or are, you know, have that as a priority, can you talk about that and whether or not that's a focus for you and your team and, and what those conversations look like for patients? Absolutely. So because especially the uterine cancer, we are seeing a little bit of an increase in younger women having it. We always want to talk to patients about what their goals are because if their goal is to save fertility as much as possible, we do have ways to be able to do that. We can treat things like uterine precancer, which is called hyperplasia or even uterine cancer with medications to try and fix that imbalance of the hormones that might be there. And so we have definitely fertility sparing mechanisms for that. For ovarian cancer, same thing. If there is ovary, uh, cancer found in an ovary and we remove that ovary, we can always leave the other ovary and the uterus and cervix behind so you can still get pregnant, you can still um, keep your fertility. I have several patients who you know, did chemo, had one ovary removed, but we're able to get pregnant afterwards. 
So there's definitely options. Cervical cancer, you know, if the cervical cancer is big enough and we are saying, you know, we need to remove your cervix, there are places that can remove the cervix but leave the rest of the uterus. I know it's a little bit weird to kind of think about that we think of these two parts. It's all one thing, but we think of it as two different parts. You can remove the cervix and leave the rest of the uterus, which is called the fundus. We can leave that behind and you can still get pregnant and carry babies in that fundus. It's risky for sure. And there's only certain centers who do it, but that is another option if fertility is sparing and you want to keep your fertility as much as possible. I mean, how incredible. And I, I know because of the technology that has changed, can you just reiterate that and, and sort of what that provides for patients as far as options and, and maybe just reassurance that if that is a goal of theirs, that there might be a possibility that that could still happen. Absolutely. So we work with IVF. So we work with, excuse me, um, reproductive endocrinology. So we work with them and we work with MFM. So those are the high-risk OB docs. And so we work all together kind of as a team to try and figure out how to achieve pregnancy after these different types of treatment. So there are options, and I think the best thing to do is to talk to your provider about what your goals are. Now, keeping fertility is not for everybody. There are some patients who come in and say, that is not what I'm thinking about right now. I just want to make sure that this cancer is gone, in which case then that's what we do. We focus on what you want out of this cancer journey. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's so important, and you've talked about that too, is is it really is an individualized journey for everyone. So. Um, talk a little bit about that and, and sort of your focus as, as a gynoc doctor and what um, that provides for patients as well, just the fact that you're listening and need them to talk, I guess. Well, and I think that that's something that not a lot of uh, patients think about is that this is a team. I'm not telling you what needs to happen. We're working on what needs to happen together. And so you need to be the focus of what we look at as far as treatment options and what your goals are. So what your goal is at the end of the day. And sometimes it's not a goal of long-term goals. Sometimes it's just a just today. Today's goal is this. And so what can we do to help you with those goals? And so everybody is individual. It's the same as cancer. Everyone's cancer is different because the genes that changed to make your cancer are different for every single person. And so we need to more focus on individualized treatment rather than global treatment that's, quote, good for everybody. Because it's not. It's not good for everybody. It might not be good for the person sitting across from you and the table. We need to figure out what is the best way to help patients get what they want and need out of their therapy, whatever that may be. And I think you've touched on it a little bit. Let's go a little bit more high level from your perspective as a, as a professional in the industry. What does the future of gynecologic cancer treatment look like in your opinion? I think it's going to be a lot more of the targeted therapies. There are new drugs that are coming out every day. You know, unfortunately, with COVID, we had a little bit of blip where not a lot was coming out just because we were focused on trying to make a vaccine. But now the farm companies are going back to trying to focus on these targeted therapies. So I think a lot is going to be based on, okay, this is your cancer. We know it started here ovarian, for example, but we actually took your cells, we looked at those cells, we said, okay, these five genes are changed. We have drugs to fit one of these genes. Let's try that drug to see if that works. 
I think it's going to be a lot more like that. Unfortunately, the flip side of that is that there are still so many genes that are mutated to cause cancer. We don't know. Uh-huh. And so if we get a patient who has, you know, we, tell, t- we test their cells and then there's no genes that come up, it's not because you don't have one that changed your cells. It's because we don't know it yet. Uh-huh. And so we can't find it. So that's really where the focus of the research has to go is continuing to find these what we call driver genes, genes that are causing this cancer in more people. So then we can find those targeted therapies to affect those genes and affect more people. So I think that's really where things are going, much more of that targeted, personalized medicine. So I want to um, back up slightly and talk about diagnosis, because as you've mentioned, this is sort of unique in that um, it's a little bit hard sometimes for women to recognize an issue. So I want to talk about diagnosis and why, in your opinion, is this hard to recognize in some cases for women? So depending on which one we're talking about, which cancer we're talking about, the heralding signs or things that we should be watching out for are different. So things, one thing that kind of is universal is if you're having strange bleeding that's persistent. And I'm not talking about you usually have periods once a month and then you skipped a month and then you went back to once a month. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about is like for the last two or three months, your periods have been super heavy. They've been totally irregular. You've had bleeding after intercourse. Things are just not right. Always talk to somebody about that. It may be completely normal, but it's always good to talk to someone. The flip side of that is when you're done having periods. If you're done having periods, and by done, quote, quote, done, we say you haven't bled in a whole year, and then you start bleeding again, that needs to be worked up, period. Because, again, it might be totally normal, but that's one of the signs of potentially having uterine cancer is that you have postmenopausal bleeding, so after menopause bleeding. So always, if there's anything funky about your periods, either while you're having them or after having them, and you start bleeding again, talk to your provider. Talk to your primary doctor. Talk to your GYN. Talk to somebody because that's not right. Yeah, and, and and this is challenging in some instances, too, because you had mentioned the pap smear, but there's really no screening test for some of these types of cancers, right? There isn't. So the pap smear is screening for cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can pick up a vaginal or a vulvar because it's all in the same area, and they're all caused by that HPV. But pap smears were made to screen for cervical cancer. There's no screening tool for ovarian, and there's none for uterine. Uterine at least tells us with that weird, funky bleeding that something's going on. But ovarian, the the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very similar to normal things that women have all the time. So things like bloating, constipation, cramping, totally normal stuff. But it's when it continues and it persists and it's doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Always talk to your doctor about it because they and they may just say, you know, it's probably just GI stuff, but it could also not be. So it's always good to talk to your provider about symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like the underlying thing here is is just that open line of communication with with yes, your provider. So absolutely. Um, I do want to talk about sort of the importance of that early detection. We, we hear that so often with cancer is that if you can catch it early, you have a lot better success rate, those kinds of things. Is that true for, for gynoc cancers as well, or, or how important is that for survival rates? It is. So if we can 
catch things as early as possible, then the survival rates are much better. So uterine cancer, because of that bleeding, that irregular bleeding, and patients knowing, okay, I haven't had a period for 10 years and now I'm bleeding again and coming in, the majority of the time with uterine cancer, we are able to pick it up early and able to pick it up in stage one. The problem with ovarian cancer is because of the fact that it is so hard to really detect, the ovarians, we sometimes don't pick those up until stage three or even stage four because that's when it starts causing problems. But for all cancers, early detection is the best. So keep getting the pap smears, keep listening to your body, and keep noticing when things are different, when they're just not right, communicate. Communicate with your providers, making sure that you kind of know how things are going and that they know how they're going with you and they can help. So I do want to remind everyone to, and, and, and maybe just educate some people on where this journey often starts for most women. So um, you're a gynecologic oncologist. Where do you come into the picture and do we need a referral to come and see you or where do we start um, this journey? So it depends on whether you have a GYN or not. So usually when patients are still having periods and they're still talking about fertility, most women have a GYN. But after all of that, after their babies are done and they're going into menopause, many don't. So if you don't have a GYN practitioner, so a gynecologic that you can talk to, call your internal medicine doc or your primary care doctor. It's always okay to start with primary care. And talk to primary care about your symptoms, ask them their opinion, see if there's something that you should be doing. Or your GYN. Some some patients actually use their GYN as their primary care doctor. So talking to whoever you go to for your treatment, and then they kind of work you up. And then depending on what, how that goes, you may be sent to either from primary care to GYN or from GYN to us, to Gynoc. So really you get to us when there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Either that bleeding we found either precancer or cancer, if we found cancer in the cervix, if we found a mass that's in the ovary that's abnormal, that's concerning for cancer, you get to us after seeing either your primary doctor or GYN. Excellent. So what advice do you have for, for women who may be experiencing any of these symptoms or irregularities that you mentioned? Um, you've, you've kind of already talked about it, but let's reiterate it, that again as far as that open conversation. Exactly. So talk to somebody about it. Talk to your provider. Just say, hey, you know, I haven't had bleeding. I haven't had any spotting, nothing for 20 years, and now I notice blood in the toilet twice. You know, stuff like that. Definitely talk to your provider about it. And the other thing that I always stress to patients is if you talk to somebody and you're like, that just doesn't make sense or uh, that doesn't feel right, seek a second opinion. It's totally okay to talk to somebody else about things and see what their thought is. You know, part of this journey, you have to be comfortable with the person that you're on it with. And so if you are hearing things from anyone, even myself, definitely, if it doesn't feel right, talk to somebody else. Make sure that you're being heard and that you advocate for yourself. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, doctor. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Again, Dr. Elizabeth Dixon-Michelson is a gynecologic oncologist with Aurora Bay Care Gynecologic Oncology. She sees patients in Green Bay and Nina. To learn more about Bay Care Clinic or to request an appointment, visit us online at baycare.net. Subscribe now to hear more Bay Care Clinic podcasts. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.